1576 of Effectively Wild, the baseball podcast at Fangraphs.com, brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I am Sam Miller, ESPN, along with Ben Lindbergh at The Ring. Hey, Ben. Hi. I've zeroed in a little bit on a discomfort with the crowd noise that I tried to talk about, but I wasn't quite actually clear on my discomfort. I focused on it. I addressed it this weekend, and I, I think I can be a little more clear now. So the normal sequence is of a baseball game is player hits the ball into the outfield it lands for a hit they show the outfielder fielding it and then they you know cut to the the runner sort of rounding first or or like returning quite frequently just returning to first after after his turn and the crowd of course cheers because it's a base hit especially if it's the home team cheers because it's a base hit and you have all these sort of sequences locked together in your mind because you've seen that sequence one billion times and you know exactly what the pace of it is supposed to go Mm -hmm. the fake crowd noise for events is like a quarter second to a second too late pretty much all the time because makes sense it makes sense these these people are very scared of cheering (laughs) the wrong thing and this actually I, i i remember this i think was in the book but there was a moment in the stomper summer when i cheered a line drive that our team hit that got caught and i was i was just scorned for this like this was one of the dumber moments i i mean really probably a, a top three or four humiliation moment for me was when i got caught being the only one cheering and out and i've seen a couple of instances where that has happened where the cheering starts for what is an out and you can just sort of feel like the the fake audience person is like kind of in in that drill tweet you know um mm-hmm. I'm, I'm so i'm sorry i'm sorry i'm trying to delete it um <laughs> yeah. but but it's like that the once you start the cheer i think that the cheer kind of has to play itself out once you press that button yeah it has to play itself out and so then it's very embarrassing <laughs> and so th- there's always a, a little bit of a lag just a very slight lag with the cheer, which you yeah. understand. And there might just have to be, not even for fear-related reasons, but just because you have to find the right cheer noise on your app on the touchpad, and you have to choose it. So you have to process that you need that sound and that that thing just happened. And instead of just emitting a noise from your mouth, as you would if you were an actual fan reacting to it in real time, yeah. you have to select something. So there's probably an inevitable delay there. Great point. Absolutely. And what you are identifying is that it is not quite natural. It's not quite a instinctive response that a crowd cheer is an instinctive response. And so it's just a little late. And so when I'm watching the fielder field the ball, routine routine single or maybe a single that's you know slightly, uh, in, slightly toward the gap maybe or slightly toward the line maybe, I'm still hearing the crowd cheer too long, too late when I know that the runner is rounding first. And to me, that sound of hearing the, the the crowd still cheering at that point is the sound of a runner going for second mm. or perhaps a, a different base. But I'm constantly expecting off screen the, the runner is, is actually winding down. And 
I'm, but I'm hearing crowd cheer, and so I'm thinking that the runner is actually accelerating even more. And so that's what I'm getting tricked on. Yeah, I've become very conscious of it if it's one of those situations where the crowd noise subsides and then builds up again between pitches. Like if it's a two strikes or two outs in an inning or something, they're one strike away maybe from getting out of the inning. And so there's the big cheer and then there's the pitch and maybe it's a foul or it's a ball and then there's a hush and then the noise builds back up again. But I'm just so conscious of the fact that there's no crowd Mm -hmm. organically doing that and that someone's up there pressing the touchpad and trying to decide, okay, it's time now. This is about when the real crowd would actually be building up its anticipation for this pitch. So here I go. (laughs) And I'm just. It's uh, like a DJ set. Yeah, basically. <laughs> so I don't know that the, the crowd noise has enhanced my enjoyment of these games. It's hard to say. but The crowd noise for the Joe Adele play, I, I was really <laughs> impressed by how quickly it happened. To me, that was the most natural crowd noise that I... And I, I saw the replay of that, and I wondered, are they going in post-production and adjusting the crowd noise to make it better on, on, mm. on these highlights, perhaps? Because... You know, Joe Joe Adele is just sort of settled under it, and then it pops out of his glove and goes over the the fence for an, a four base error home run, and yeah. it was immediately a perfect crowd noise. And I thought, how did how did you get that so quickly? I was really the, impressed. The sound clip queued up for four base error <laughs> off the glove over the wall. Yeah, finger finger <laughs> hovering over that button just in case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, anything going on? Well, you know how sometimes we'll talk about something, some hypothetical, and then by coincidence and almost miraculously it will happen just a few days later. For instance, when we talked about the possibility of having drones in the ballpark just about 10 days ago, and then lo and behold, a few days later, a drone appeared over the Twins-Pirates game, and there was a drone delay. And we had talked about whether it would be distracting to have a drone in the field during a game just for broadcast-related reasons, and clearly it was distracting because they weren't expecting it, and they didn't know why there was a drone there, and it stopped the game. So that was weird. Sometimes that just happens after we talk about something. Sometimes it takes years for something that we talk about to happen or something quite close to it. And that happened on Saturday when Derek Holland had a disastrous start to his start. So Derek Holland was starting for the Pirates and he was pitching against the Tigers. And he came out for the top of the first and the sequence went home run, single, home run, home run, home run. So four homers in the the first without getting an out in the first five batters. He hasn't retired anyone. And as someone on Twitter pointed out, we had discussed a scenario very much like that about four years ago on episode 891. A listener had asked us, I think, how many home runs we thought a starter would get, how long your leash would be if you just went out there and started serving up home runs. And we had a, a guest, a listener on with us in that episode, Corey and Corey, thought it could go as high as six home runs and according to the effectively wild wiki that is i have not gone back and listened but he said six we said four or five consecutive home runs to begin a game before pulling their starter so we know that in this case at least it was not quite consecutive but five consecutive hits four of them were homers and holland get got to keep pitching so after he gave up the fourth home run he gave up a a sharp liner to deep center i did not look to see how deep 
deep, but hard hit, I think. Then another single, line drive to deep right, still in the game. Then he got a pickoff first, which was merciful. Then he walked a guy, and then he got a foul to get out of the inning, foul pop-up, and then a ground out. And at that point, you might think, okay, he's down 5 nothing. He can't be long for this game. He ended up pitching five-plus innings. He stayed in there. He sort of settled down. He gave up a run in the second. Then he kind of cruised through the third, cruised through the fourth. Then he also cruised for the fifth. Then he came out for the sixth. And the sixth went home run, still in there. Double, line drive to the gap, still in there. Another double, line drive down the line. That's when he finally, finally got pulled. And at that point, he had thrown 112 pitches, which is uh, a lot in 2020 or just in this day and age period. And he did it really despite all expectations and odds, even though he started the game with five straight hits, four of which were homers. So there it is, the real-life proof of how long you can be left in. You can give up at least four homers in the first five batters you face and end up pitching five-plus innings and throwing 112 pitches. Who knew? Yeah, and uh, the hypothetical as I remember it was was uh, if if every home run came on the first pitch. And a lot of the, mm. my recollection, I don't know for sure that I was involved in this conversation, <laughs> but <laughs> my recollection is that part of the discussion was just how long it would take to warm somebody up, how much you could stall. And I, I think that there was a feeling that, that you would have to stick with them for a certain amount of time because you wouldn't have time to get anybody up. Yeah. Uh, but Holland, uh, Holland did not have to, to adhere to that part of the hypothetical and, and got to throw 11 pitches. Yeah. Uh, although let's see. So the, I mean, you wouldn't, the, the, the single was a ground ball single. So it was four pitches for the first two batters, home run single, and then O two to Cabrera. And then it went Homer on the O two and then an 0-2 homer to C.J. Crone, and then a first pitch homer to Jamer Candelario. And so that's all. More details. Yeah. Okay. Well, it kind of happened. Well, good for him. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's a lot of trust. Yeah. Derek Shelton or desperation. I don't know which. I'm glad that he was allowed to stay in. I think that, I mean, we sort of, there's, we the evidence suggests that a pitcher who has a start like this is not actually like irredeemable for the day that it, sometimes you have a bad stretches of 11 pitches and if you thought that the pitcher was your best option 11 pitches ago it's pretty good chance that he still is right now and so i'm glad that he was left in and that we got to see it in action i think that probably there should be i don't know maybe maybe more leash than we expected a pitcher would get in that situation well, what do the Pirates have to lose at this point? I guess just uh, more baseball games. Mm -hmm. One other thing, I saw kind of an interesting discussion in our Facebook group about Fernando Tatis Jr., who is uh, really just kind of leveling up, it looks like, and was already at a very high level. I think you christened him, or maybe we all agreed he was the most watchable, most exciting, most riveting player of 2019 before he got hurt. Now he has come back and is just seemingly the, the best player, at least he has been so far. He's leading the majors in war. He's leading the 
the National League in home runs. He is also, I think, second in stolen bases in the National League behind his teammate Tommy Pham, and he seems to have become much more selective all of a sudden. He's just still fun, but even better than he was before. And listener Mark started a discussion in the Facebook group about the fact that he's probably going to pass his dad any day now in war, probably this season, if the, the season is completed. And yet, Mark wanted to know, what are the odds that at some point in his career, he'll do something more remarkable than what his father did? Which, of course, was hit mm. two grand slams in a single inning. Mm -hmm. And Mark says the word remarkable was chosen yeah. carefully there. Yeah. I'm not asking whether he'll be a better player or end up with more war or anything like that. This is specifically a reference to the single greatest inning of his father's career mm -hmm. and whether he can do something that is more remarkable. Remarkable, I've always found such an a, 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 an odd word anyway, because you are saying that it, this something is so whatever of whatever essence that one remarks on it. Remark being such a, a weak verb as it is like... <laughs> Oh my gosh, it was, I had to remark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I guess if you treat remarkable in the literal sense of like needing, of, of something that one remarks upon its remarkability, it's, it's, I guess it's oddness or it's being unique or being curious, it, curious maybe would yeah. be something, then two grand slams in an inning is tough because two grand slams in an inning is right there with two no hitters in a row being yeah. almost impossible to imagine breaking. In fact, you would have to say that it is much more likely that a pitcher will someday throw three no hitters in a row than that a batter will someday <laughs> hit three grand slams in an inning. Yeah. I mean, how aren't there like a extremely small, extremely small number of batters who have batted three times in an inning i think in history yeah uh, yeah it can't be topped really it could be equaled but it wouldn't be nearly as remarkable if it were equaled yeah so what would tatis do to well we have to remember that most of the most of the world has never heard of fernando tatis seniors two grand slams in an inning or mm -hmm. doesn't isn't kind of like couldn't remark upon it from memory because most you know it's a very it's a very niche achievement if you hang around the game and listen to a bunch of broadcasts then you'll eventually hear it and you'll know about it but it has not i, I wouldn't say that it is broken through to widespread knowledge and and if you if you don't know something you can't remark upon it and so i think that simply being like like mike trout's career has been remarked upon more than more than Fernando Tatis's two Grand Slam inning, right? Yes. But the the percentage of people who have heard of Mike Trout's career that have then remarked on it is lower than the people who have heard of Fernando Tatis's two Grand Slams in an inning and then remarked on it. I think <laughs> like it's almost a hundred percent remark rate for the two Grand Slam inning, <laughs> yeah. whereas a lot of people just hear the Trout news and then and then file it away, mm -hmm. uh, perhaps for a, a later remark. So I I think that it is. Probably, I'll put it this way. I, I think that Tatis Jr. will be much more famous than his father, even in 100 years when his father's achievement is still in baseball trivia books and mm -hmm. is still remarked on in broadcasts, assuming yeah. there are still broadcasts. Tatis Sr.'s achievement is immortal. It Since it won't be topped, it will never go away. Uh, and yet I think that Tatis Jr. will still be more famous 
uh, if he has a career that he's currently on trajectory for. Yeah, if the question is which of the Tatises is more often remarked on, I think that would certainly be Junior. But if we're talking about if there's anything specific that he will do or a certain play that he will have, I think it's very unlikely, as good as he is, and as long as he'll hopefully play in as many wonderful plays as he'll hopefully accomplish, I don't know that any of them really could rise to that level of remarkability. It would almost have to be something we can't even think of, because it's not like we were sitting around waiting for someone to hit two grand slams in an inning. It's just, it would have seemed so inconceivable before it happened. So there are very few things, I think, that could even clear that bar. His most recent homer, as we record this, was against Madison Bumgarner, and it was just, I mean, it was an absolute bomb. Madison Bumgarner was struggling at the time, and Tatis just, you know, really hit the ball a very long way. And Tatis, you know, with Bumgarner, Bumgarner is the the cop, right? And so you, if you you show too much emotion on a home run against Bumgarner, it's like a 100% chance that it's going to turn into a thing. And so I was watching to see, like, oh, are we going to have a thing? And... Tatis confidently tossed his bat aside and put his head down and jogged around the bases. And Bumgarner, you know, disgustedly spit at himself and walked down the mound. And then the catcher, you know, went, whoa. And and it was all very normal. And you thought, okay, there's not going to be anything here. And then they cut to left field where Bumgarner's teammate, David Peralta, never turned around and very ostentatiously never turned around. And it was as though he was doing Tatis's bat flip for him. Like Tatis, <laughs> Tatis didn't want to start anything. And so Peralta did it kind of like showed the showed the flex for him by not moving, not turning around, not not budging at all. Like there's there's outfielders that don't move on home runs. And then there's outfielders who purposefully become statues and Peralta did that and it was very impressive and drove home the point that Tatis had just completely buried um, Madison Bumgarner and uh, I wondered why the outfielder not moving which is essentially a way of showing up the pitcher I mean it's more it shows up the pitcher more than a bat flip ever could or or a slow jog around the bases or admiring your home run from the batter's box more than that the out the outfielder on the pitcher's very own team he, he sort of like disgustedly expressing hopelessness shows up the pitcher much more and I'm surprised that that isn't an unwritten rule that like outfielders are not supposed to do that mm. but apparently they're not and I'm grateful that that it has somehow escaped the fun police's notice that we're still allowed to see outfielders do it. Yeah, that's a good point. All right. I sent you a file. Yep. Last year, a quarter of the way into the season, we played a game called Is He Good? And it was about relievers who a quarter into the season, quarter of the way into the season, were, you know, had either had either been good or had not been good. And we're now a quarter of the way into this season. We're 15 yeah. games into the 60-game season. And it is, I mean, last year, a quarter of the way into the season was, was of course, mid-May. It was 40 games. And it was impossible to say who had been good and, and to know who had been good because relievers are so difficult to track and their performance is so difficult to even assess in smallish samples and is uh, so wildly unpredictive. And so it's absolutely outrageous to try to do it 15 games into a season. And so we're going to do it. And we're going to do it 
partly just to stress be, the weirdness of this season. I think that one of the ways that the the weirdness of this season is actually going to be most obvious when you're looking back five years from now, or like when you're just living your baseball fan life five years from now, is you're constantly going to be looking up player pages of players who are, you know, by that point normal. They're going to be either they're just going to be living their normal careers again. And you're going to want to look up their stats to see like, oh, how are they doing this year? And you're going to see that 2020 line. And yeah. there's going to be a lot of pitchers with good careers who have an ERA of 8.93 in the middle of it because <laughs> it's this year. Or they're going to be pitchers who, I guess the opposite. They're going to have ERAs of zero in the middle of a bunch of fours because this is the year. And that's true for everybody, I think. To, to some degree or another, there's going to be a lot of career high rate stats and there's going to be a lot of unthinkably low career low rate stats, I think. But relievers are already subject to this wildness and this year is just going to really intensify it. So to take one person off of this spreadsheet's example, Kirby Yates last year had one of the great reliever seasons of all time. And presumably he is still capable of, uh, I mean, he is still that pitcher and he might be just as good going forward. And if he is, he'll probably have an ERA, even if the rest of the season, he's like essentially unhittable Kirby Yates, his ERA will probably be in the threes or fours at best, just Mm -hmm. because a quarter of the way into the season, he has an ERA of 10.38. Mm-hmm. That 10.38 coming on, you know, four and a third innings. Yeah. One fourth, <laughs> one fourth of the season is four and a third innings. Start one game like Derek Holland and you're, you're, you're done. ERA is and and I, yeah. I, yes, exactly. And I do wonder whether what it's like for players a quarter of the way into the season to already be in holes, statistical holes. Does it motivate you that you're just going to chip away? But yeah, I mean, relievers this year are going to get 20, 25 innings and they've already got a quarter of them booked. So anyway, we're going to play this dumb, this outrageous version of an already silly game. And so I've sent you a file. You're going to need to get a random number generator. You will roll a number, name a pitcher, tell me the team, and then I will tell you whether he has been good and then Mm -hmm. vice versa. And that's it. That's the game. Okay. Yeah, last time we played this, it inspired a website, right? We had a a listener, uh, Corey Martin, who built a a website so that everyone could play this game at home. It's uh, it's called isthisguygood.gq, and I don't know if it's been updated with uh, 2020 data, but it was fun. You could just click through, and you'd get relievers, and you can choose good if mm -hmm. you think his ERA is below three, and bad if you think it's above 420 is that what we're doing did we have no numbers for this? i have yeah i have a little i made it a little more extreme this year so it's every reliever on here has thrown at least five relief appearances and every reliever's era is either below two and a half or above five so they've either been really good or they have been uh, really not good okay all right. So go ahead. And yeah, I was thinking that maybe just to help add a little information to this, uh, if it's a pitcher, name the pitcher, and I was, I, I will volunteer to read their baseball prospectus blurb this year. Okay. If that seems like, and if it doesn't work, then we'll edit it out. Sure. Okay. All right. I have selected a random number. It is Nick Turley. Nick Turley. Yeah. Nick Turley. Oh, my goodness. I saw Nick Turley pitch. 
a game and I remember thinking, this is what the experience of watching Nick Turley made me feel. I thought, oh wow, it just occurred to me that in like seven years, there's gonna be a whole generation of pitchers who who looked up to Joe Kelly and modeled themselves after <laughs> Joe Kelly. And Joe Kelly will still be in the majors somehow and he will be the most, like we will be surprised to find that Joe Kelly has aged into the most, one of the most respected veterans in the game. <laughs> yeah. In the same way that, like, you would never have been able to convince the average fan that Jason Giambi would someday become one of the mm-hmm. most respected players in the game, that Fernando Rodney would would someday, you know, become one of the most respected players in the game. I think Nelson Cruz might be the most respected veteran in the game yeah. right now, and probably eight years ago or whenever he had his PED test. That might have been surprising to the fans. But yeah. I think there's, my guess is that, like, a lot of people probably like really like Joe Kelly among baseball players. They see him as like a cool guy to party with. Uh, <laughs> you know, he puts in the works, been around, pitched in high leverage situations, and has a look, you know, has a particular look. And I watched Nick Turley, who was throwing high 90s fastballs while wearing goggles and kind of looking like Joe Kelly on the mound. I think I think I'm thinking of Nick Turley. So Nick Turley, my <laughs> recollection is that he basically missed the last two years after surgery, has come back throwing gas, looked good when I saw him, but it's been a tough year for the Pirates. You want to probably default to 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 not good for an average pirate. Yeah. I am gonna go with good. Okay. And I will real quick, I'm gonna read Nick Turley. Let's see if I even have the right guy. Nick Turley. I don't even know if I have the right guy. <laughs> he's, he's on the Pirates. <laughs> he's on the Pirates. He's not in the book. He has missed seasons. He last pitched in 2017 in the majors. I wonder who I'm thinking of. Well, let's just assume I, I meant Nick Turley all along. Go ahead. Is he good? <laughs> he's not good. He's. Uh... I was thinking of Nick Birdie. Oh. <laughs> well, <laughs> close enough. <laughs> No, Nick Turley's uh he's not not the worst. He's he's got a 5.68 ERA right now although he has uh, walked about twice as many batters as he has struck out. So, not good. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, well, that's very embarrassing. I mean, I couldn't have told you anything off the top of my head really about Nick Turley, which I guess would have been more accurate if I had said I know nothing about Nick Turley than what you said, which was not Nick Turley related at all. Nick but Turley, yeah. <laughs> Nick, Nick Turley is not in the baseball prospectus annual. So he is not one of the 2000 <laughs> players that got a write up this year. So that makes me feel a little bit better. Yeah. Uh, Nick Birdie. <laughs> Similar name, scans the same in poetry, and here is his write-up. It was a 1-0 pitch to Gerard Dyson, a 97-mile-per-hour fastball. Birdie released it and then clutched his throwing arm and knelt to the ground in pain. He had been marked by a scalpel two winters ago for Tommy John, and now this. Fortunately, in a sense, it wasn't the tendon, but rather the nerve. He saw another surgeon, and this time they corrected his thoracic outlet syndrome. Birdie ought to be able to reaffirm his reputation for heat and high leverage tolerance come spring. He'll try to throw more than 20 innings in a season for the first time since 2015. That's Nick Birdie. And uh, sadly, he probably will not throw more than 20 innings in a season for the <laughs> no. first time because it's yeah. this season. Nick Birdie, two innings, four strikeouts, one run allowed, only three appearances, not on the spreadsheet. 
Yeah. I remember Nick Turley vaguely just because he was drafted by the Yankees and was coming up when I was working there, although he was a, a 50th round draft pick. So for him to be around, even if he's on the Pirates, as a 50th round draft pick, that's uh, it's pretty good. Good for you, Nick Turley, even though you're not pitching very well this season. What would you say is the, the rate of like 40-year-old guys who are that kind of clubhouse mentor type? It's got to be like... 90% or something, right? By, I mean, by reputation. Yeah. yeah. Like if you're Nelson Cruz, then you are going to get a roster spot because you're like one of the best hitters in baseball still somehow. But if you're Jason Giambi, who wasn't much of a hitter at all for the last few years of his career, you don't stay around unless you are that kind of guy probably. And still no one would have seen that coming that he would be that kind of guy, but he was. And that's kind of why he was there at all. Whereas, I mean, with most guys, by the time you're 40, you're not good anymore, you know, or or you're not like a, a starter level good. You're maybe just a, a bench bat or a bullpen guy or something. And at that point, what's keeping you on the roster is probably your personality and your reputation and your leadership and your calming presence and all that. So it's pretty rare that you get someone who is that age who is not seen as the wise beloved veteran yeah it's at least 90 percent, and and you could even even if you narrowed it down to players who in their 20s had the opposite reputation it's still 90 (laughs) percent. yeah (laughs) it just like the reputations are the reputations follow uh follow certain it's like a survivorship bias thing if you're still there you're one of the good guys as they say Uh, all right i rolled number 78 which is josh tomlin oh on the braves currently a brave huh and i will uh i'm gonna read you josh tomlin going into the 2019 season tomlin had a clear reputation he hated walks like your dog hated the vacuum cleaner seemed like he was pitching as if he was trying to avoid walking the batter at all costs as it turned out his walk averse ways on the mound ended up transforming him from a waning starter to a somewhat reliable middle reliever what's intriguing is that he managed to cut his home run rate in half and did so without impeding on his strike throwing proclivities he's not someone you want for a high leverage situation but he's easy on the eyes, and regardless of whether it works or not, you know it'll be over quickly. Well, I mean, I guess the, the Braves have been fairly successful, so that makes me think good. Otherwise, I would not have expected a lot out of Josh Tomlin at this point. What I really remember about him is that his home run allowed total and his walk total were tracking pretty closely together for a while because he was just a total home run dispenser, but he was not allowing any walks. And so it was kind of interesting to see if uh, one or the other would be better. But I guess I will say... Since he's still there and since he's on a good contending team, I guess I'll say he's been good. He's been extremely good. He Uh has thrown nine innings scorelessly. He has allowed only two hits in those nine innings. Struck out 12. What? Yeah. Walked (laughs) one. His FIP would, if it holds, be the all-time record for the lowest FIP ever. It's .64. (laughs) <laughs> and uh and just this is actually he is currently on track because he hasn't allowed a home run yet he is currently on track to have a home run per nine that's lower than his walks per nine for the first time since 2012 so huh. that's that's one two three four five six seven years in a row that his home run rate was 
at least as high, in most cases, much higher than his walk rate. One year he had double. He allowed twice as many home runs as walks. Yeah. He allowed 25 homers while walking 12. <laughs> I'm looking at his velocity now. I'm wondering if there was some sort of late career bullpen velocity boost for Josh Tomlin. And no, there hasn't been. He's uh, averaging under 88 with his fastball. How is, how is this happening? This is weird. I certainly did not expect Josh Tomlin to have 12 strikeouts per nine. <laughs> yeah, Tomlin, I like Tomlin because he was a college shortstop and drafted as a college shortstop in a late round and he wasn't very good and he didn't sign as a college shortstop and then he got drafted again and they converted him to a pitcher and when you hear a story like that and then the pitcher goes on to make it in the game you go wow this game is so rich with unusual career arcs i mean this shortstop made it as a pitcher even though he didn't even start pitching until he was 22 and it wasn't his first position and he was a late round draft pick and he didn't make it to the majors until pretty late. And all that is already a testament to how unpredictable baseball is. But then you add to that that he is one of the most extreme and unusual pitching careers ever. It's not just remarkable that he made it, but that he is unlike anything else in the game. He's unlike any pitcher that we've seen in... 20 years and there's all these sub shocks within the shocking story that keep revealing themselves and so now here he is 35 years old and he's an ace he's a bullpen ace he's very good (laughs) wow well i'm learning a lot all right your name oh this could be a tough one jonathan hernandez ah okay (laughs) jonathan hernandez Give me a give me a team. Rangers. And uh <laughs> any I, other I, information about Jonathan Hernandez? You know, I think I actually know this one. <laughs> but I might not. So four eighty two, Jonathan Hernandez got a line out in this year's annual. It's fun to play this game, so here. In Jonathan Hernandez's big league debut, he faced Albert Pujols and the game was won on a Hunter Pence walk-off single. For now, that's not a super fun fact. So it's up to Hernandez to stick around long enough to let it age into a fine vintage fun fact. Okay. Jonathan Hernandez has been good, but I can't tell you anything beyond that. I'm impressed that you could tell me that unless you're guessing, but it's true. He's been good. He has been good. Yeah, I I know that he... Sometime this weekend I saw that he had not allowed a run, I believe. And that is all I know. Yeah, he has allowed runs now. He's allowed uh, two runs in nine innings, but he has struck out 14 in those innings. So, yeah, he has been quite good. Who is he? <laughs> well, you know more than uh, than I do, apparently, about Jonathan Hernandez. He debuted last year and didn't pitch a whole lot of innings last year either, so we haven't had a, a lot of time to see him. And... We're exhausting my Jonathan Hernandez knowledge here. He has been with the Rangers his whole career, signed out of the Dominican. So uh, he's 24 years old, just turned 24, right-handed reliever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he actually, maybe. yeah, he has struck out 14 per nine this year. Mm -hmm. He had, I think I actually didn't see him as a a no runs allowed 
guy. I think I saw him as a top strikeout rate guy. He had 13 strikeouts in eight innings uh, before his last outing. And something about the strikeout rate I saw and then thought that I had to look him up later, and I never did. 6'3 right-hander and appears to be quite good. Yep. All right. Let's see here. I am going to roll. All right. I got number nine, which is Andrew Chafin. Andrew, Andrew Chafin, Chafin. Oh. Arizona Diamondback. Yeah, I uh, I saw him the other night because I was watching the Padres Diamondbacks game, and he was pitching. Can I? Uh, sh- this is interesting. The, okay, so here's his here's his write up. Chafin faced two batters or fewer in nearly half of his 77 appearances in 2019, a stat that is only now relevant given the upcoming rule change requiring pitchers to face at least three batters or end right. a half inning before being removed. There's hope for Chafin despite this, however. While he has primarily been used against lefties throughout his career, his splits aren't so extreme that facing the occasional right-handed bat will sap his value entirely. It's a good thing, too, as we could all use a little more of the mustachioed man nicknamed the Sheriff in our yeah. lives. Yeah, I think I think I recall that I was surprised to see his numbers when he came in because I think of him as good, and so I think he has not been good. Wow, very very good. He has not been good, and and I actually wonder whether I thought that you might have missed that one because I wondered whether you saw him the same time I saw him, which was two days ago, Saturday. He came into a big spot against the Padres and. He was very good. And it was one of those things where they brought him in. Okay, so the Diamondbacks are up by two. Merrill Kelly allows the leadoff single. And so now the tying run is coming up, and it's Eric Hosmer. They bring in Chafin to face Hosmer, the lefty. And, of course, that would have been traditionally the easy call. But now you, since this is this year, we're watching to see, well, what happens now? And what happens now is then he has to face Will Myers, who is a right-hander with power. And then he has to face Jerickson Profar. And he gets both of them, and he looked very good. And it was like a great a great moment for Andrew Chafin. And so I was hoping that you had seen that and remembered <laughs> him being good. Yeah. Uh, but he has otherwise not been good. But he has, more notably, he has pitched a lot. So the three batter rule, well, I guess I was going to say the three batter rule has not affected his usage, but maybe the fact that he's doing bad is bad because it will be observed and mm-hmm. seen as evidence that he shouldn't be used much. Right. Yeah. Okay. My pick for you is Hobie Milner. Oh, uh hobie milner i have seen he is either he is an angel he is a lefty he has big floppy mechanics he (laughs) thought you were gonna say big bushy eyebrows because it uh, looks like he has those too and he came into a game he lost one of the extra inning games that i saw Uh, one of the first extra he lost the first extra inning game in fact Mm. the first 10th inning game in baseball history or the first you know 10 inning artificial rules in baseball history hobie milner was brought in to face i could have so many details here wrong i believe he was brought in and had to face some batters and i believe he lost i'm gonna say hobie milner has been bad hobie milner has been 
good, actually. Yeah, he's pitched eight games and only four and a third innings, so I guess he's making a run at the the Lukey role, or as close as you can in this day and age, and he has allowed only one run. Yeah, you know that that one run. That was the one that you happened to see. Yeah, it was the Matt Olson walk-off grand slam. Uh Uh-huh. He came in and threw one pitch, threw one pitch to... To Matt Olson, and from that, I was confident saying that he had not been good. Yeah. <laughs> since then, as you say, he hasn't allowed a run, and since then, he has allowed hitters he has faced to bat 077, 143, 077. All he has allowed is a single and a walk while striking out four, and uh, that's all really very good. Yeah, very good. And I feel bad because when you told me that Hobie Milner has been good and I went, ah, <laughs> I am not rooting against Hobie Milner in <laughs> yeah. general. Yeah. So Milner is, uh, was, a uh, basically released by the Rays. He was, uh, briefly a Ray last year was released and signed by the angels briefly appeared as a Ray last year, had actually been a Ray before that and came into this season with a career ERA of 3.4. So he's probably an average loogie. And we'll see whether, like Andrew Chafin, he survives. Yes. All right. I have the number 63. The number 63 is... Oh, it's Javi Guerra. Okay. Okay. Well, I I saw Javi Guerra. Did you? No. Wait. Yes. Wait. Wait. Did you? Uh, I'm thinking of... uh, I'm thinking of another reliever I saw the other day. Okay. Well, because... So here's the problem. There's yeah, two there's two yeah, Javi Garras. Yeah, right. I'm thinking of the Padres Javi Guerra. There's a Padres and a Nationals. Yeah, that's oh, which and, one is <laughs> uh, We don't know which one is number 63. <laughs> okay, well. They they maybe have both been good and they maybe have both not been good. Yeah. So I know the, the Padres one. Don't know if he's been good, but I know that he is good because he was quite impressive when I saw him the other night. He actually he threw 102, which yeah. I I wasn't sure whether to believe because he was throwing like 98, 99, and then all of a sudden there was 102 out of nowhere. Very easy, too. Yeah, right. It didn't look like he had uh, reared back to to try to do it. So wasn't sure whether that was actually accurate, but he looked very good. But uh, again, I I think like with with Chafin, I, I think that was a case where it was like he looked good, but hadn't been good up until that point because the announcers were saying like it's an important inning for him or something as I vaguely recall so I think that Javi Guerra has not been good but probably is pretty good if he's (laughs) pumping 102 in there as for the other Javi Guerra who I guess is the Javi Guerra who's been around longer right he's uh, the Padres Javi Guerra is the Javi Guerra come lately this is this is the veteran Javi Guerra who's been bouncing around but I have no idea whether he has been good this year uh, although I think of him as good in general so that's all I've got to go on what if so, I told you that he is on the Nationals yeah I don't know if that really helps me very much uh, yeah um, <laughs> I, I guess I'd guess good just to balance out the universe of Javi Guerra's Okay, well, you have actually you nailed it. Oh. Ha- Javi Guerra, the Padre, has yeah. not has not been very effective thus far. 
And Javi Guerra, the national, has thrown seven and a third innings, has allowed only one run, struck out eight, and walked nobody. And let's see, Javi Guerra, the Padre. Unfortunately, Javi Guerra, the Padre's hitting stats are still above his pitching stats on his baseball <laughs> reference minor league page, which uh-huh. is what I was looking at. But in his Convert. major league page, uh, he has a 7.94 ERA in five and two-thirds innings. And yeah, Guerra, the, the Padre is the much more interesting player uh he was a top prospect as a as an infielder as a red Sox, and he got traded to the padres in the craig kimbrell deal right and then they converted him to pitching now did they convert him to i don't is he a two-way player or is he just a pitcher now i don't think he is a two-way player i don't either let's see he he batted well he batted 19 times last year as a Padre, yeah, he he played short, he pinch hit, and he played third uh, hmm. as a Padre last year. Let me see here. Batting, 2019. Uh, or maybe that was 2018. Uh, no, last year, all pitching. Sorry. Last year, okay. all pitcher. Year before, all hitter. So, yeah, he is a full convert. And, yeah, it looked intimidating. You can see why he yeah. he converted. Javi Guerra, the national, is part of the Nationals bullpen. And that was their big problem last year. Let's see how their bullpen is doing this year. In As reliever, their bullpen this year has a 3.48 ERA. So it's been quite good and just goes to show. Yeah, Padres manager Jace Tingler said of Padres Javi Guerra in March, I've seen guys convert, but I've never seen anybody in 14 or 15 months go from shortstop to do what he's doing on the mound. I don't think I've seen such easy strikes with premier velocity and movement, plus the ability to throw a secondary pitch while having the shortstop background. He can make bounce off the mound on bunt plays, field his position. It's like having a fifth infielder out there. I think that's important when you are throwing a 99-mile-per-hour bowling ball. So, yeah, he seems good. All right. Let's do one more round. Okay. Your reliever is Jimmy Cordero. By the way, the... Pitcher a few years ago, the pitcher, the the position player converting to pitcher story was really in a boom. There was like I, I wrote an article for ESPN the magazine Christian about that. Bethancourt on the Padres. And the he is he is another one. And there at the time it was I want to say something like a fifth of the closers in the game mm. had actually converted from positions. Like Joe Nathan had the guy on the Cardinals with the beard had <laughs> Kenley Jansen. Kenley Jansen, of course, had Sean Doolittle had oh Carlos Marmol had. There were a whole bunch of them top closers. I wrote about why that was so and what people look for when they're making these conversions and whether it was going to happen more. And there have still been conversion stories, but it feels like a lot fewer of them. Nobody is asking me to write magazine articles about that. Yeah. Anymore. Yeah. Okay. Who'd you give me? Jimmy Cordero. And the team that Jimmy Cordero's on? <laughs> White Sox. Oh. oh. I need a hypnotist to pull this one out of me. <laughs> I have seen him. Oh, I don't think I'm going to get it. I don't. I can't get it. I can't get a single thing out of this. Jimmy Cordero. Jimmy Cordero. Ah, oh, I saw it. What did I see? Uh Oh, I saw it. <laughs> I, I don't know. He's been, I got to say, well, I'll just 
play the odds and I'll say that uh, I've recently seen White Sox innings that were high leverage and Jimmy Cordero was not throwing them. So I'm going to guess that he has not worked his way into high leverage. I'm guessing that based on a very small exposure. And I'm going to say Jimmy Cordero has been bad. Yeah, he has a 5.06 ERA. Oh, that's barely bad. It's, that's yeah, it's barely over the line. One but, outing away yeah. from being good. Seven games, five and a third innings, three earned runs, four runs, period. Not great peripherals, nothing particularly standing out about Jimmy Cordero, and evidently nothing particularly stood out to you when you watched Jimmy Cordero. He is a right-hander. He is a large gentleman, 6'4", 235, and he debuted in 2018 with the Nationals, but he was already in his age 26 season at that point. He is uh, closing in on 29 now, so... He seems like a fairly generic middle reliever, although he was fairly good for the White Sox last year, at least ERA-wise, but has a very low strikeout rate for a reliever in 2020. I mean, his career strikeout rate is 6.9 per nine in 60 games all out of the bullpen, and that's got to be one of the lowest strikeout rates, I would imagine, for any reliever over that period who's thrown 60 innings pitched, probably. It's uh, it's tough to stick in a bullpen these days if you're not even striking out seven per nine. Here's his blurb. Cordero has huge biceps, a pathological hatred of sleeves. He rolls them up when he pitches <laughs> and very easily touches 98 with a sinker that generates heaps of ground balls that he's changed teams six times in his young career. Seems like a flagrant display of ignorance of how cool it is to watch a pitcher huck high 90s heaters with his guns out. But given how often Cordero was regifted and whom he was regifted by, you would have expected a more arduous reclamation project than he proved to be. He was fine. He torched AAA like legit big leaguers tend to do and threw enough strikes at high enough speeds to balance out how non-particular he was about where in the zone he located them. If he continues to do that, he should remain in the majors, tease some possibility of more, and never have to wear his sleeves down again. I remember that because he pitched on Sunday Night Baseball this week, and I remember his sleevelessness because people were commenting on his pythons. Oh, see, I was eating dinner when he came into that game, and it was the <laughs> fact that I think Evan Marshall and Alex yeah. Colomay pitched later is what actually caused me to <laughs> miss Jimmy yeah. Cordero. There was a stretch of that game where it was like nine or ten strikeouts in a row, like both sides. Yeah. Just it was like Bieber, Giolito, Evan Marshall, James Karinchak, the the strikeout god, came in, and it was just strikeout after strikeout after strikeout. And that's kind of what baseball has been a little bit this year because strikeouts are at their highest level ever again. And BABIP is extraordinarily low, which we talked about and I just wrote about because it's still extraordinarily low. So that's kind of what baseball has been. And I was enjoying it when it was Bieber and when it was Karen Chak and when it was Giolito. I was not enjoying it as much when some generic middle relievers came in or when Evan Marshall came in. Mm. No slight against Evan Marshall, but uh, he's not quite as fun as James Karen Chak. All right. Last one. I got 28, which is Cy Sneed. Oh, Cy Sneed. Okay. I have spoken to Cy Sneed because I interviewed him for the MVP machine. He is uh, an Astros swingman or probably reliever. I don't know what he's been doing this year because uh, their whole staff has been injured. But he was not 
particularly good when I talked to him. He was uh, kind of like a, a borderline fringy prospect type, maybe just a, a depth guy. And I'm going to guess that he has not been good. Let's see. So Cy Sneed has... Would it matter to you if I told you that Cy Sneed has the highest average leverage index in baseball this year? That sounds promising. I would hope that he's been good if that's the case. Uh-huh. Well, unfortunately, he hasn't yet been good. Uh, <laughs> okay. you, you are correct that he is on the uh, lower half of our rankings of our spreadsheet. He has allowed eight runs in six innings, five of them earned, and has walked five in those six innings, two of them intentionally. And the intentional walks are part of why he has such high leverage index. Sneed has been in two extra innings appearances this year. And he was actually, he, I'm looking at his game log here. He has pitched the only two 13th innings in baseball thus far. So he was in the Astros Dodgers game that went 13 and he pitched the final two and a third and took the loss. And then he was in the Astros A's game this weekend that went 13 and he came in in the 13th and he also took the loss in that one and then he had another outing in between where he gave up some runs so he's extremely high leverage but um not because he's the club's closer or anything like that yeah uh, so size need thus far is not but you know it's he's got he's got 13 innings left this year to <laughs> to right the ship did you see the a's astros game that went 13 no okay this game, okay. So top of the tenth, Astros sacrifice, which already wow, yeah. Astros sacrifice. They get a runner to third with one out. Jake Diekman strikes out Abraham Toro, gets out of the inning. Bottom ten, A's sacrifice. A's sacrifice the runner to third. They have the runner at third, one out. Marcus Simeon strike out swinging, and then after a walk, Matt Olson out. Okay. Top of the 11th, ground out by Alex Bregman, doesn't advance the runner, and they don't score. Okay, that's a nothing. Bottom of the 11th, Matt Chapman, leadoff single, runners on first and third, nobody out. Strikeout, strikeout, hit by pitch, strikeout. Okay, (laughs) top 12, leadoff single, runner on first and third, nobody out. Line out, strikeout, ground out. Okay. Bottom 12, walk, line out, hit by pitch. Bases loaded, one out, strike out, ground out. To the 13th, the Astros score one on a double, and then the A's score two on two singles. So they went 0 for 7, not just 0 for 7, with runner on third and one or none out. They had seven chances to score that run and did not get the run home which is the most exciting to me, a runner on third, um, a win, particularly a winning run, but runner on third with less than two outs when the pitcher gets out of it is one of the most exciting turnarounds in baseball, uh, yeah. particularly like mid-inning. Yeah. And so to see seven of those situations come up and get squandered, to see twice where you had runners at the corners with nobody out and they couldn't get them in. And I think that one of the fears that I had with this extra innings format is that you were going to have a lot of runs scoring on outs, which I don't think you want. And what has happened almost entirely has been runs scoring on hits. A lot of runs scoring on two out hits. Um, and all three runs in these in this game scored on hits. 
not yeah. on sa- on sack flies or ground outs or anything like that. And yeah. so it's been really fun. It's quite exciting. There was that safety squeeze in the Sunday night game, yeah. which was very fun and well executed. It doesn't detract from the thrill of escaping the jam that you didn't really work your way into the jam fully like one nice thing about the the rally that you usually get in a normal inning or working out of a jam is that you were there from scratch and you put that runner on in the first place you got yourself in trouble and then you get yourself out of trouble it's even more exciting when you do that i think so when you start in a jam essentially you're always in a jam in extra innings now does that take away at all from it for you i guess not yeah, you, you guess not. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't sound like it. So far, not. It, yeah, it cheapens it a little for me, I think, just because you're always in. It's like, you know, if you if you were always in the red zone or something in the, the football game, which is exciting. There's a whole channel <laughs> devoted to that. So I guess it's good. But I don't know if I'll, I'll tire of that just because it, it, I don't know, it feels a little artificial, which it is. That's kind of the, the complaint about it all along. But I can't dispute that it is quite exciting. All right, that's all. Okay, that will do it for today. Pretty happy with the names the random number generator selected for me there. When Sam sent the file over, I opened it, and I was scrolling down and seeing names I didn't know at all. I could have gotten Anthony Misevich or Caleb Berger. Instead, my biggest problem was which Javi Guerra we were talking about. I'll link, by the way, to the article I briefly referenced about BABIP. It's up at the ringer now. When we spoke about it last week, I think BABIP was at 275, 276, and as I speak right now, it is still at 276. As a result, the league as a whole is batting 230 right now, which makes 1968 look like a good year for batting average. And it's still sort of a mystery why that is. We're kind of past the point at which small sample is a sufficient explanation. But it could be the pitchers, it could be the hitters, it could be defensive positioning, it could be fielder performance. One thing I didn't mention is that hitters have been somewhat limited in their access to batting practice, especially if they're on the road. Because of COVID, they're not really allowed to congregate in the cages. So especially if you're not at your home park, you may not have a lot of time to get your work in. Plus, video access has been restricted, both because of COVID and because of sign stealing. So hitters haven't been able to study themselves and break down their swings as much. Don't think that's the answer, but could be something. Maybe it would have some effect on home field advantage too. Anyway, I tried to unravel that knot, so feel free to check that out. And please feel free to support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some small monthly amount to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Demo, Adam Kurtzer, Patchy Beard, Manny Diaz, and Trip Von Minden. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Sam and Meg coming via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. We will probably answer some emails next time. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Oh, some acorns, some acorns, and oaks. You're a good kid. You're a good kid.